0: let me pray let me pray um, uh, for for this sermon Heavenly Father would you visit this place we pray that even as we reflect upon the despair and hopelessness of Jonah's situation you would fill us with resurrection hope that we find in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, years ago, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, I refer to him every now and then. <clears throat> he made up a word. Um, and I think it's a great word. It never really caught on, but I think it's a great word. And the word is you, catastrophe. And so, you guys. Know what catastrophe means, right? It's a sudden and massive turn for the worst. It's a disaster, right? Well, you catastrophe, you add on the prefix "you," which means good. It's just the opposite. It's a sudden and massive turn for the better, right? And and Tolkien said this is real. This is a real thing. This this kind of thing really happens. And actually, all the best stories have a you catastrophe in them. So when a little hobbit. Makes it all the way to Mount Doom and saves all of Middle Earth, that's a moment of you catastrophe. You know, the ground opens up and all the orcs spill in and the mountain crumbles away and it's just, it's amazing. Um, When Princess Anna's act of sacrificial love unfreezes all of Arendelle, it's you (laughs) catastrophic. When Hero from Big Hero 6, a very underrated film, when he finds a way to rebuild Baymax after losing him in this portal, that's a U Catastrophe. Some of you know that back in the day, uh, my wife Carissa got her degree in film studies at FSU. And I used to tell her that if she ever opens her own film company, she should call it U Catastrophe Films. So I I thought it would stir people's curiosity. Eucatastrophe, what's that? But I also thought it would be fitting. Because sad art is easy, isn't it? Tragedy is a lot easier to, you know, it's a lot easier for human beings to express themselves in that way. But as Christians, we are resurrection people. In one of his personal letters, Tolkien wrote, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with the joy that brings tears, which I argue is the highest function of fairy stories to produce. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because its sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief, as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly been snapped back into place. the book of Jonah includes a catastrophe as well, doesn't it? Just when you think Jonah is dead, just when you think the city of Nineveh will never hear the message of repentance, just when you think human sin has trumped the sovereignty of God, the Lord flips the script, and instead of going down, 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 as John pointed out that Jonah does in chapter 1, he's finally, in chapter 2, brought up from the pit the turn of good is so catastrophic that it becomes a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the son of God it's the greatest eucatastrophe of all time and it's true Jesus says in Matthew 12 an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I'd be grateful if you grab a pew Bible and turn to Jonah chapter 2. And when you have a hardback Bible, um, why don't you call out and let us know what page number Jonah two is? Seven seventy four. Seven seventy four. Seven All right, seven seventy four. Somebody want to call out the page for the paperback? Five thirty two. Five thirty two. All right, seven seventy four and five thirty two. There are three major themes um, I want to highlight for us this morning. The first is the sovereignty of God. The second is the hopelessness of Jonah. And the third is the hope of resurrection. So the sovereignty of God, the hopelessness of Jonah, and the hope of resurrection. I'm going to spend actually a good amount of time on the first point and touch on the other two more briefly. So follow me as I kind of meander along this morning. So first, let's see what Jonah can teach us about the sovereignty of God. In other words, God's kinglike power and authority over all things. That's his sovereignty. It's a kinglike power and authority over all things. This is a major theme throughout the book. And actually, there's a special emphasis on God's sovereignty over all of nature in the book of Jonah. From the vast Mediterranean Sea, in chapter 1, to the scorching east wind in chapter 4 from the giant fish to the tiny worm last week in Jonah 1 we heard about the prophet's attempt to run away from this sovereign God to run away from his will for Jonah's life instead of preaching in Nineveh he booked a ticket as the Jesus storybook bible puts it to not Nineveh and sailed in the opposite direction so what did the Lord do Jonah 1.4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. See the activity of God in the way that that's described. And after the sailors throw Jonah overboard, we notice in verse 15 that immediately the sea ceased from its raging. Right? So the book of Jonah portrays a God who's so mighty, he can flip the raging seas on and off like a light switch. But his sovereignty is not restricted to nature alone. The sailors also cast lots. It's like, a, it's like rolling dice. To find out, you know, uh, like who's the rotten egg? Right? Why is all this happening? And not surprisingly, the lot fell on Jonah. So the Lord has control over the rolling of dice. Now, God doesn't have to command the dice. I'm not saying that he dictates the outcome of every slot machine in Vegas. But the point is, he can if he wants to. That's an important distinction. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that he always intervenes. It means that he's always able to. So the sovereign Lord has the ability to effortlessly manipulate the weather, the seas, the rolling of dice, all animals, both wild and domestic. We'll get into that next week. And all creation just obeys him. just obeys the voice of the Creator. Actually, um, who's the only one in the entire book of Jonah who doesn't obey God? Right. Jonah himself, the one who the book's named after. Isn't that interesting? Even the evil nation of Nineveh ends up hearing God's word and obeying. But not the prophet of the Lord. It's like the creator is orchestrating a beautiful symphony and the first violin is, like, wildly out of tune. <laughs> a few years ago, my friend Brendan wrote a song called How Can I? And the repeated chorus goes like this. I'm going I'm to sing just this little bit for you. Um, it goes, Creator of the mountains, Commander of the sea. All the earth bows before you, but I can't stand to bend my knees. All the earth bows before its creator, but we can't stand to bend our knees. I think we've all been in that place, haven't we? We've all been where Jonah is. We've received some clear instruction uh, from the Spirit. Or from his word, don't date that person. No messing around outside of marriage. Be quick to listen, slow to anger. Avoid all gossip. Tell your parents the truth. And instead of obeying, we've booked a ticket to not Nineveh and turned around and sailed the opposite direction. I have a friend who used to literally um, climb out of her window at night to meet boys. And uh, years later she became a Christian, and she shared her testimony on a mission trip to Uganda. She kept sharing it to all these youth. And she said that the local girls would always laugh at her in surprise. And when she asked why they were laughing, they would say, You do that too? So this this is what Adam is like. This is what life is like in Adam. A familiar fellowship of disobedience. And if God is the rightful, sovereign king, this is an unacceptable state of affairs, is it not? And ultimately, the only solution comes through transferring our identities from being in Adam to being in Christ. And the gift of his spirit is what trains us in obedience. Because in him we find something greater than Jonah is here. But we're still a ways away from the new covenant here in the book of Jonah. So how do we see God dealing with this wayward prophet in his disobedience? And what can we take away from this? Well, the first thing to notice is that God doesn't sort of control Jonah like a puppet on a string, Right? Mm-hmm. That's not the way that God tends to work in Scripture. Not to mention it would have made for a much shorter story. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No, I'm not going to... Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And this, you know, God doesn't do this. It isn't because human will is somehow completely off limits, as if God were handcuffed and unable to influence us directly. Actually, we see several places in Scripture where God does just that. Um, You know, Pharaoh, for example, or Balaam. Uh, But this isn't the normal biblical pattern. God, in his sovereignty, usually respects human will, not because he has to, but because he chooses to. He tends to exercise his influence indirectly through things like conscience and the community around us and circumstance. Three C's. I don't know if that was intentional. This is what we see in the book of Jonah, right? Jonah's not a puppet on a string, but by the time he's in the belly of the whale, the disobedience prophet, his choices, and I believe he still had a choice, but they've become rather limited, haven't they? Either repent or be digested. So that's Jonah's part in repentance, right? Very non-heroic. that's a good, that's a good model for the way to think about how we contribute. We got no no boasting even in our repentance, do we? Look with me, if you would, at Jonah 117. The last verse of Jonah chapter 1. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish. So see there, again, God's sovereignty over nature. God appointed a great fish, and the great fish is like, yes, sir.
1: <laughs>
0: the Hebrew word dag, translated here as fish, is not as specific as our word for fish, so it could just be any large aquatic beast, such as a whale or, or something like that. Um, either way, it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, at this point in the story, the question people often want to ask is, is this literal history? Right? Is it scientifically possible for a man to be swallowed by a huge fish or a whale only to emerge three days later alive and well? And I actually want to wander down that cul-de-sac a little bit today. Um, before we get back on the road, let's go down that a little bit. Maybe we'll get back on the road, we'll see. Because I've heard many people say things like, Um, I can believe Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, absolutely, which is good, because that's central to our faith. But I can't believe that stuff about Jonah and the fish. And you know, um, there are some Orthodox, Bible-believing scholars who say that Jonah is not meant to be taken as literal history. They say that it's, it's more like a parable intended to teach Israel. And so the historical aspect is not as important as it might be in other parts of the Bible. Uh, It's sort of like the prodigal son of the Old Testament, but just like with a weirder ending. (laughs) Now these scholars might be right. They might be reading the textual clues in the right way. And uh, we need to be careful not to give an overly simplistic answer to the question, do you take the Bible literally? Our answer should be that we want to take the Bible however God wants us to take the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. If someone were to ask me, do I believe that Satan is real? I would say yes, literally. I believe he's literally real. But if someone were to ask, do I believe the devil is literally a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, as described in the book of Revelation, I would say no. I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing with the biblical imagery there. I don't think this is just like a portrait um, or a snapshot or like um, like a photo of the devil. It's supposed to be teaching us something, right? That's not how we read that text. But some people seem to think that a hyper and a hyper-literalism is just like the safest route always, right? But I think biblical faith and blind conservativism are not the same thing, right? Biblical faith believes in the virgin birth because they believe that it's actually true, that that's actually the way that it happened. But blind conservativism believes in the virgin birth because they were born in the Bible Belt, and, and you can't imagine disagreeing with your grandpappy. I think instead of asking, do you take the Bible literally, a better question might be, do you believe the Bible is authoritative and trustworthy? Is it trustworthy in what it affirms? Does it shape your worldview in the way that you live? However, having said all of this, I want to say that I think that most of the skepticism I've heard about Jonah is wrongheaded. I think most of it that I've heard is wrongheaded. If, if someone thinks it's meant to be read as a parable, fine. Make your case from the text. But don't believe that it's a parable or that it can't be true just because it's too unscientific. Right? Let me explain what I mean by asking a more foundational question. Do you believe in a creator? Do you believe God created everything that is, everything in the universe? I would guess most people in this room would say yes. Actually, um, almost two-thirds of the world believes that. Mm -hmm. And as a student of philosophy, I I happen to think it's a very sensible thing to believe. I remember um, a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with my nephews, and their, their parents are not Christian, but they don't remind me being who I am around them and engaging their kids. And, uh, and I said to my nephews, um, who are 8 and 6, I said, think with me for a second. Imagine um, an empty room. It's dark, it's empty. In fact, there's not even any air in it. There's nothing in it. Do you get what I'm saying? Nothing. No atmosphere, no air, no nothing. All right? I said... Now, if you go back to that room two weeks later, what's going to be going on in that room? And they said, nothing. I said, if you go back into that room 100,000 years later, what's going to be going on in that room? They say, nothing. And I say, yeah, well, you know what's interesting? Everything around us. Isn't that interesting? That something exists rather than nothing. How do you think it got here? And they were like, God? and I said that sounds pretty sensible to me
1: <laughs>
0: something doesn't come out of nothing right or you know something can't be made out of the nothing that's already in the room right mm. if something is going to be made it has to be made by a transcendent being that stands outside of that creation you can't you can't take something within the creation and say it came from that that's like you know pulling your lip over your head and swallowing right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's the same but it sounded, good. It sounded good for a second you know, I, so, I, so I said to them, all right, did you know that everything in the world is moving? And my, my older nephew, he's real smart, he's like, oh yeah, I know that everything's moving. I, I said, did you know that even in a diamond, there's little atoms and mo- molecules bouncing off each other? Like, he said, yes, yes, I know that, right? <laughs> I said, okay. I said, um, I said, what happens when you keep, when, if, I, if I were to just put something on the ground right here and I never came back and touched it, and two weeks later, there's no earthquake, there's no hurricane, what's going to happen to that? He mm-hmm. said, it's still going to be there. I said, yeah, because an object at rest stays at rest, right? But an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Well, everything in the world is in motion. Mm-hmm. So at some point, and there's a little pencil on the table and I flicked it, and I said, there had to be flick an unmoved mover. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I said, who do you think that is? They said, God. (laughs) I said, I think so too. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Belief in a creator is so common, and it's so intuitively persuasive that I don't think we understand how radical the implications are. Because if that's the case, as all Christians and Muslims and Jews and all other theists claim. If God created everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he he had a thought in his mind, and he just sovereignly exercised power, boom, so that it translated into reality. If that's the way that it happened with the sea and the land and the stars and the universe, then that was an exercise of sheer sovereign authority, sheer power of a kind that we cannot even imagine we understand that? That's an exercise of power and authority that we cannot even fathom. Could such a God appoint a whale to swallow a man and spit him out unscathed three days later? I mean, are you kidding me? That's nothing. That's nothing. Is that even a question? We're talking about a God who thought up the concept of water and effortly thrust it into existence. Keeping a man alive and a fish is Nothing. We're talking about not we're, we're not talking about a god who breaks the laws of science. We're talking about a god who created them, upholds them and yet transcends them. If you're a Christian, you're committed to a supernaturalist worldview. Did you know that? You got to wrestle with that. Right? Get to come to grips with it. So we might have some disagreements about how commonly God intervenes in the world. You know, some people might think it happens all the time. Some people might think it's only only every once in a while. You know, That's why it's called a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) But we should all at least be in agreement that there are essentially no limitations except those that God is bound to by his own good nature or by the principle of non-contradiction. God cannot create a square circle. He cannot create a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift it. Um, But essentially, there's no limitations to what God can do. You know, the biggest difference between... uh, Some of you guys have taken New Testament classes um, at secular universities. You know, the biggest difference between a revisionist Bible scholar like Bart Ehrman or uh, John Dominic Crossan, if those names mean anything to you. I see some of you guys going, (laughs) The biggest difference between people like that and scholars who are faithful to the scriptures, like an N.T. Wright, or a Gordon Wenham, or even a Dr. Sarah Hall, (laughs) the biggest difference is not that one group knows there are difficulties in the text and the other group just doesn't know that. Or that one group sees all the prophecies and the uncanny and beautiful thematic parallels and the other doesn't. The difference is not one of intelligence or access to certain sources. The difference is one of worldview, right? It's the difference between belief and unbelief in a supernatural creator. Bart Ehrman is a self-avowed atheist. John Dominic Crossan, he left the priesthood. He doesn't believe that miracles are possible. And when pressed by William Lane Craig, he admitted he just genuinely doesn't believe that God exists outside of human experience. One philosopher had these sober words to deliver to revisionist Bible scholars. He said, How honest is it to say I'm a Christian, God exists, and Jesus rose from the dead, when what you actually mean is, I have a healthy respect for the teachings of a man who was no savior. I believe that there is such a thing as goodness, and Jesus' teachings still have some relevance for today. He says, Surely the respectable thing to say is, Look, Christianity is false. There is no God, but we can still glean a thing or two from what Jesus said. Right? That would be the honest thing to say. So getting us back on track, is the book of Jonah historical? Well, I can't say for sure. Uh, But John already mentioned last week that Jonah, son of Amittai, was a real guy who shows up elsewhere in the scriptures, 2 Kings 14.25. So I guess my main point is, Real Christianity already believes in all kinds of miracles. So there's nothing in our worldview which would exclude these things from being able to happen. Right? That's the important thing. We shouldn't just come to it, oh, just, I don't know, you know, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I don't know about this, what? You know, the question is, you know, whether it did happen, that's a different question, but the question of whether it could happen, that shouldn't be a question for us. So getting back from the cul-de-sac onto the main road. Let's turn, if you would, to the prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. If you remember, our first point was about the sovereignty of God. And even our little cul-de-sac was related to that. The second point is about the hopelessness of Jonah. All of the language in Jonah, if you read it carefully, is the language of death and finality. If he didn't die literally, and I'm not sure that he didn't, he at least died symbolically. That's why in Matthew 12, Jesus compares his death or de- death and resurrection to Jonah. It's easy to think that the connection is just because of the, sim- the sort of familiar span of time—three days and three nights—but actually, it goes deeper than that. Both Jesus and Jonah came back from the realm of the dead. Jesus from the grave and Jonah from Sheol. Jonah begins in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Wow. Think about that. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. In Hebrew thought, Sheol Sheol was the realm of the dead. It was called the pit also as it is here in verse 7. And Sheol was was a more shadowy, sort of less developed concept of the afterlife than we get in the New Testament. Sometimes Sheol is used in a generic way of speaking of the grave, um, just the place that everybody goes. Sometimes it's spoken of more specifically as the place where the wicked go. Um, That's why the King James Version translates it as hell. Um, That's a common translation for Sheol. In Jewish thought, the way that you entered Sheol was to go through a gate made of bars. And so look at verse 6. Jonah says, I went down to the land, that is to the land of Sheol, whose bars closed upon me forever. Right? Closed upon me forever. I mean, notice the sense of finality there. The bars are closed forever. Jonah's fate is sealed, it's hopeless. To me, one of the most terrifying images in this passage is where the deep surrounds him and verse 6 talks about him being down at the roots of the mountain. Mm -hmm. That's just a scary image. You're in the ocean, you're down at the roots of the mountain. I remember um, when um, The Two Towers came out and uh, I just thought it had the greatest movie intro of all time. (laughs) You remember it kind of flashes back to when, you know, Gandalf is holding on to the edge and the Balrog, you know, whips his thing and, and Gandalf falls down into the pit with this demon and they're falling and Gandalf like produces, you know, he, he like catches this sword and they're fighting while they're falling in this like seemingly bottomless pit, right? And so like they're fighting and they're falling and they're fighting for like a minute and you're just like, dude, this is awesome. And, and then all of a sudden the, the camera backs up and you see this like wide angle and they back into this pit that's like so wide and so vast that even this like huge ball rock just looks so small. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> like how deep is this pit, right? So that's, that's where Jonah is now, right? He's at the roots of the mountain. It seemed hopeless that anybody would ever see him again. I had a friend who used to always pray, Jesus, you're my only hope. She said, Jesus, you're my only hope. And I, I, I brought that to her attention one day. I said, I notice you always pray this way. And she said, Because you don't know how messed up I am. Yeah. She said, Jesus is my only hope. I said, All right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a lot going on in the world today that seems hopeless, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the problems of race relations in the U.S., it seems hopeless, doesn't it? The rising divorce rates and the breakdown of the family seems hopeless. The two-dimensional portrayal of Christianity in the media, it seems hopeless. But Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between ethnic groups. He has given us a new family in the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. And he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That brings us to our third point, the hope of resurrection. We are resurrection people. The evil that surrounds us in the world, it shouldn't surprise us. It should surprise us the least, right? Because we believe in the fall. But at the same time, we always have hope because God is mighty to save. Before we could get to that point, we needed to realize how hopeless it was for Jonah. Jonah. It reminds me of the way that Charles Dickens begins his play A Christmas Carol where he talks about his old business partner Marley being as dead as a doornail. He writes, Marley was dead to begin with. This must be distinctly understood or nothing <coughs> wonderful can come from the story that I'm about to tell. So something like this is going on here in Jonah too. If we really want to get a sense of how wonderful God's salvation is, we need to distinctly understand How far gone Jonah was. Jonah had reached the roots of the mountain. The bars of Sheol had closed over him forever. That's it. Cue the music. Roll the credits. It's over. But just when we think we've reached the end, we're actually in the climax of the story. We get to this wonderful little word in the middle of verse 6. Yet... That's the climax up until this point in the book of Jonah. That's the pivot point. Yet, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the language of resurrection. Like, this is the moment of you catastrophe. That's why it's connected with Jesus, because Jesus, as you know, was stripped, tortured, nailed to a cross, mocked. Certified as dead and buried in a tomb. He was wrapped in bands, set in there with spices all tucked into him. But on the third day, you catastrophe, according to the scriptures. Tolkien said, This is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. And I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story, and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it's qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. This is an important message for me right now, and I'm sure it is for you. It's important to remember that we serve the God of resurrection. I, um, I have a friend in jail who's been in jail for a few weeks, and um, I've been visiting quite a bit. And uh, Four years ago, uh, he was following the Lord and had been following the Lord and progressing in his relationship with the Lord for many years. And then he just fell away like I'd never seen anyone fall away before. I mean, God was using this person in a mighty way, healing people. You know, people were coming to know the Lord through this guy. He had deep fellowship with many believers. And since that point, about four years ago, his life has degenerated in every possible way. I mean, physically, psychologically, morally, spiritually. But as I've been visiting him, I've been telling him, bro, you can come back from the dead. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he looks at me and he's like, does he really believe that? I'm like, yeah man, I believe that. Because Jonah came back from the dead. Mm -hmm. And especially because Jesus Mm -hmm. came back from the dead. Are there any situations in your life where you've lost hope? If so, remember these two things. That God is sovereign and in him There is hope of resurrection. Amen.